Hello, First Baptist Church of Keller family. I welcome you to another installment of our Systematic Theology class. And we come today to the lecture on the doctrine of salvation. And really, um, as we think about the doctrine of the scriptures and inspiration, um, our understanding of the scriptures is that the Bible is primarily designed to lead us into salvation. In fact, our Baptist faith and message doctrinal position as Southern Baptist says that very clearly, that when it comes to the Bible, it has salvation for its end. And that really is taken from uh, the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 20, uh, near the end of his Gospel, John explains why he wrote his Gospel. And this is what he says. He says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John says his gospel really is a long gospel tract. It's designed to, to lead a person who reads it uh, to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and ultimately to our topic today, which is salvation. So technically, the study of salvation or the doctrine of salvation is called soteriology, which is taken from the Greek word for Savior. Probably one of the first questions we need to answer as it relates to salvation is from what or whom are we saved? When I was growing up in the rural South, a question that was often asked of friends and family and acquaintances is, are you saved? And those of us who grew up in that part of the world understood what that meant. It means, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Have you been born again? But that terminology of, of saved and salvation is foreign to the ears of many people today. So we need to ask the question, um, from what or whom are we saved? Well, there are a number of answers that we could give. Sometimes people say we're saved from our sins, and I suppose uh, there's some truth to that. But ultimately, what we're saved from is the righteous and uh, the justice of a perfect and a holy God. Uh, God is love. We love to quote that verse, but the Bible also clearly teaches that God is also perfectly just. That's hard for us to comprehend because we don't know anyone that is other than God. Uh, even the best judges in the world are human, and they are limited in their ability to discern truth from error and to render verdicts that are equitable and just. God the Father is not limited in any of those ways. That's why we started with the study of God the Father with his attributes. One of his attributes is he is omniscient. He knows everything at once. He's omnipotent. He's everywhere at once. And those things make him a judge that is perfectly capable of rendering justice in every situation. And so if we got what we deserved, that is strict justice, we know that all of us would be separated eternally from God according to the scriptures. And that's why when we are convicted of our personal sin and guilt by the Holy Spirit, the correct response is not to plead for justice from God, but rather to plead for mercy. And really what salvation is, is God's answer to that prayer for mercy and for grace. Now, it's important to be ready to memorize the definitions of some important vocabulary words over the next couple of weeks, because I think it's going to take us at least two weeks uh, to go through the doctrine of soteriology. Uh, 
one of the topics we're going to discuss today is the topic of regeneration, which means uh, to be born again. Uh, it really means to give new life to something that has died. And so the classic text on that is John chapter 3, and I'm going to ask Tyler to read verses 1 through 8. John 3, 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so Jesus clearly taught Nicodemus that to have eternal life, a person must be born again. Now there's some implications to that. First of all, verse 3 and 5 tells us that the new birth is essential to entering the kingdom. There's no other way to enter the kingdom of God than through regeneration and new birth. Perhaps Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and probably a moral, upright man, felt like through personal reformation or uh, trying a little harder that perhaps he could make himself worthy. Uh, he could clean his act up enough to be eligible for eternal life. And Jesus uh, dispels that notion right away. And I think that the takeaway from that is if a man like Nicodemus, who probably was as, as morally upright as any man that had, had was living at that time, could not earn heaven, neither can any of the rest of us. Uh, verse 5 teaches us that the, the new birth is a work of the Holy Spirit. And so as we've been pointing out in our study of Trinitarian theology, that all three members of the Trinity are present and are working in all of the great works of God through history. That began at, at creation. We see God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit active in creation. And here we see God the Father, Son, and Spirit active in redemption. And I like to call God's plan to save a people unto himself uh, his eternal plan of redemption because it started before any of us were ever born and uh, it really will never end because um, it concludes with eternal life, life that goes on forever and ever. Verse 8 tells us that the new birth is, is like the wind. Uh, we can't control the wind. We can't see the wind. We only see what happens as a result of it. And I think that tells us something that's very important for us to know as it relates to personal evangelism. We can't save anyone. Now, we can be obedient to tell the gospel to all those we come in contact with. We can be obedient to pray for the lost as we're instructed to in Scripture, but we can't save anyone. Um, among my pastor friends, um, we have something we do when, when one of us has a speaking engagement and we're reporting on how it went. One of us is bound to ask, did you save anyone? And the expected answer is, I can't save anyone, only the Lord 
can do that. And that's a reminder to ourselves that uh, our success in the ministry, in the eyes of the world, as the world counts success, is, is not up to us. Our job is to be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God, and the Spirit uh, has to do the saving. Now, another text that's important for this doctrine is Ephesians chapter 2, particularly verses 1 through 6. Tyler? Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now the reason that this text is so important is it establishes mankind's condition before he is regenerated. Remember the word regeneration means giving you life to something that has died. And we looked at last week when Dr. Waldrop was with us by phone that um, mankind is not good. In fact, he's born in a state of what we call total depravity and inability to reconcile himself to a holy and righteous God. And, and Paul uses a word here that's it's very clear. He says we were dead in sins. Uh, he doesn't say we were sick. doesn't say that uh, we were on the edge of death. He says we were dead in trespasses and sins. And the only thing that a dead person needs is life. And that's the condition we were in spiritually. And so when God saves someone, that's exactly what he does. According to verses 4 through 6, he makes something that was dead alive. And that really is the basic definition of regeneration. There are other nuances to this doctrine of regeneration. Tyler, read Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so we see there that regeneration has to do with washing. Again, in Psalm 51, David called upon God to cleanse him thoroughly. He understood that sin had defiled him and made him impure. Um, and, and so, again, at regeneration, we're washed and, and we're cleansed in the eyes of God. But again, as Titus affirms, of course, what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, that this all is a work of the Holy Spirit. We see the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, where Peter confesses that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. So remember, we always try to establish two or three positive pegs upon which we can hang our theological hat. And so when we're talking about regeneration, there's two or three things to remember. Number one, regeneration is not optional if a person is going to go to heaven. It is essential. It is the only way to heaven. And I think that's exactly what Jesus meant in John chapter 14 when he said of himself that I am the way, the truth, and, and the life. He, he means there salvation, regeneration made possible through faith in Christ alone. Now, the second thing to remember is that regeneration is, is all of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is his work. When we studied 
uh, pneumatology, the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the one thing that, that we tried to uh, impress upon you. In fact, when Jesus talked about the coming Holy, Holy Spirit, he described his activity of convincing us of sin and judgment and, and righteousness. And those things are, are words that have to do with regeneration and, and salvation. And so thirdly, uh, the new birth brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's not that he knocks off our rough edges. It's not that he points out some areas that we need to do a little better in or try a little harder in. It's the miracle work of taking something that was dead and breathing life into it. And so when we talk about the necessity of the new birth, uh, those are the things to remember. We have to be born again because we were dead. We have to be given sight because we were blind. And there's no way to enter into God's eternal kingdom except through new birth. I've mentioned a couple of times that this fall we have scheduled a conference on uh, the doctrine of assurance. How can a person know that they are born again? And so I hope all of you will make plans to attend that conference, but let me cover that briefly. Um, the question is, is, what is the result of the new birth? How will we recognize it if it's happened? Well, the first thing is, is there's going to be life where there was death. But the second thing is there's going to be love where there was an absence of love. That is, our disposition towards God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, and, and to our sin is, is going to be changed. And I'm going to read now uh, from a passage of Scripture that uh, probably is, is one of the clearest in the Bible concerning regeneration, and that is the, the little book of 1 John. In 1 John chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And so the first evidence of assurance that a person is saved is that you believe that, that Christ is, is uh, who he said he was. I mentioned that last Sunday in my sermon as we were talking about the deity of Christ and how all of the Bible points to the deity of Christ and the fulfillment, fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And so if a person uh, puts their faith and trust in Christ, that's how you know, first of all, that you're born of God, that, that you've been uh, born again. But also he gives you um, a desire to serve him. Now that is not to say that when a person is born again, he ceases or she ceases to sin. It simply means that the trajectory of one's life and one's attitude towards their sin fundamentally changes. And then we begin to make progress and we grow in sanctification. And we're going to cover that concept of sanctification more thoroughly next week, Lord willing. But the idea is that until we die or till the Lord Jesus returns after we've been born again, we continue to grow in our understanding and our application and so let me just sum it up with this as we talk about re regeneration. Um, it's a work of God. We can't save anyone. We can't force anyone to be born again. But it's uh, something informative that, that we need to share the word. The Lord in his sovereignty has um, ordained that the way that someone is born again is that someone who is saved sharing that life-giving message of the gospel with someone who is not yet saved. What's, what's the scripture means when it says faith comes by hearing? 
and hearing from the word of God. Uh, there's no other means that God has ordained for someone to be saved other than they hear the good news message about Jesus and then the Holy Spirit, remember, takes that message and convicts that person of their personal sin and guilt, of the righteousness of God of which they fall short, and his sure judgment that is to come. And then they cry out, Father, forgive me. Um, that is the prayer of humility and the prayer of salvation that the Lord hears. So, so we can evangelize, and then we are called upon to pray for the Spirit to do what man cannot do, and that is for those whose lives we are concerned about to truly be born again and, and to be saved. Now, that really is God's perspective on our salvation, is, is regeneration. He breathes spiritual life. But, but there's also our perspective, and so I want to introduce now another vocabulary word, and that is conversion. You've probably heard someone say, I was converted at a certain point in time. Uh, what do we mean by that? Well, conversion is simply the sinner's response to the gospel involving both faith and repentance. Um, so you've probably heard it said that repentance is walking in one direction and turn around and walking the other. And of course, there's always limits to any definition that you use, but I think we must include in the definition of repentance that it is a change of mind or heart that results in a change of action. That is, if someone declares, uh, I'm sorry for my sin, but they go on in an unbroken pattern of that sin, we can't really say that that person has genuinely repented. Um, and, and faith and repentance are really two sides of the same theological coin. Um, faith um, is more than giving mental assent to some facts about history. Um, so just because someone believes that a person named Jesus walked this planet 2,000 years ago and died in the place of sinners on the cross doesn't make that person um, a Christian or doesn't make them born again. The reason we know that is because the Bible says the demons believe those things about Jesus, and we surely wouldn't say that the demons are born again. It means putting full confidence in the truth. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse uh, 9 and 10, is that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So uh, when, when we accept Jesus as Lord in our Baptist terminology, what we mean is we accept all of his truth claims. And as we saw last Sunday in the sermon, that includes his claim to be God in the flesh. In fact, uh, I said in that sermon, if a person rejects the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ, they can't rightly call themselves a Christian according to the Bible's uh, understanding, and therefore we can't refer to them as brothers and sisters in Christ with any degree of honesty. And so repentance and faith are, are the responses to the good news uh, that, that Jesus uh, has, has lived a perfect life and he's died a substitutionary death in our place that God has accepted that sacrifice as evidenced by his, his resurrection. This is what Jesus preached. This is what Paul, Peter, all the apostles preached. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, we've referenced a couple of times in the last few weeks, when Paul was speaking to that Gentile crowd of unbelievers, he says that God is demanding, in essence, that all men everywhere repent it is a requirement and a prerequisite for salvation. But 
you may hear that, that, that faith and repentance are requirements for salvation and say, well, I have to do that on my own. That is, I have to whip up enough enthusiasm to overcome my sinful habits, or I have to whip up enough um, faith and trust to get to a level that God accepts. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible teaches very clearly that repentance and faith are both gifts given by God. It's not uh, something that we can take any credit for. I want to give you a few verses to look up on your own that teach that. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Acts 11, verse 18. 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 25. And so in essence, repentance then is turning from sin. Remember we said in our, in our doctrine of sin last week, harmoniology, that we sin because we're sinners. That is our nature. But when we're born again, now for the first time, we have the ability not to sin, so to speak. But again, that is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2, um, verses 8 and 9 is the classic text, and I want to turn and uh, read that to you now. We've studied the book of uh, Ephesians verse by verse twice since I've been the pastor here these last uh, two years. And you've heard this verse quoted hundreds of times from our pulpit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And my New American Standard has a semicolon there. And then it says, And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Now sometimes when we read that too quickly, we think it's simply referring to salvation being a gift. It is. But let me read that slowly for effect, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. So he's speaking of the faith. Obviously, grace is a gift. That is the definition of grace, getting something good that we have not earned and uh, do not deserve. But he is saying that even the faith, that is the belief that it requires to be saved, to appropriate salvation is, is also a gift. That is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no man can boast. So please disabuse yourself of any notion that you have to whip up enough enthusiasm or faith for God to accept you. And of course, James chapter 2, verse 19 teaches us that faith is more than believing true things about God. As I said, uh, Satan and his demons believe that. Um, now, James also says that faith without works is dead. And what he says is you can know if your faith is genuine if it results in a changed life. That's what I was talking about is that trajectory towards righteousness and sanctification that is a result of genuine regeneration. So if someone comes to my office and, and they say, I, I'm doubting my salvation. I don't know if I'm truly saved or not. Um, I don't immediately try to talk them off of that ledge. In fact, I begin to ask them some diagnostic questions. I say, well, do you love the things of God? Do you enjoy being in the presence of other Christians? Do you love singing praises to the Lord? Do you love worshiping the Lord? Uh, are you hungry for the word of God? Are you exercising your spiritual gift? And, and if the answer to those diagnostic questions is no, there may be very good reason for a person to doubt his or her salvation. So assurance of salvation does not come from the fact that you prayed a sincere prayer at some time in the past. Assurance comes from an ongoing walk with the Lord in which spiritual fruit is being produced. And we studied spiritual fruit back a few weeks ago when we we're studying the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Um, and I'd encourage you to go back and review that lesson on pneumatology um, for a more thorough un- understanding of what we mean by the fruit of the Spirit. But it, in essence, is a changed life. You began to produce those attributes, those communicable attributes of God, love, joy, peace, patience, all of those things that he mentions there uh, in the book of, of Galatians. Um, now that's uh, repentance. So, so as we talk about faith, uh, what do we mean when we're talking about faith? Of course, the classic definition of faith we find in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1. The writer of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so it's the confidence in something you, you cannot see. Um, again, Jesus talked about the work of the Spirit. You can't see the wind. You can see its effect. And so faith is the confidence that, that God is going to do exactly what he's promised to do. Um, and, of course, faith is demonstrated by action. I can have faith that my car is going to get me home at the end of the day, but until I get in it and crank it and put it in gear, uh, that's just theoretical in nature. And so the, the same thing is true of um, saving faith. And until we put our weight and our trust in our eternal destiny in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, it, it really is, is, is so much talk. So again, I, I want to give us, as we close today, two or three um, positive things uh, to take away from this idea of conversion. Number one, um, the, the correct and required response to a gospel message for a lost person is repentance and faith. Um, that is the only correct response. Um, that's why we call people um, to a crisis moment in, in which they publicly confess Christ as, as Lord and Savior um, because that is what the Bible says is required, is, is turning from sin and towards Christ and putting their trust completely in Christ. So to put your trust completely in Christ, you can't put any of your trust in anything else, including some false religion that you grew in, grew up in. And specifically, you can't put any faith and trust in yourself. That is, you can't uh, say, I'm going to do 30% of the work and trust in Christ to do the reigning 70%. It is all of Christ or it's not true faith. It's not true repentance. Uh, But something to keep in mind, just as we said, as it relates to regeneration, as we do evangelism, we can't save anyone because regeneration is is a work of the Holy Spirit. Repentance and faith are both works of God as well. Now, God in his sovereignty uses evangelism and preaching of the gospel um, to bring about that conviction of sin through the Spirit but ultimately, repentance and faith are, are gifts of God. That's why when I pray for the lost, uh, specifically after I've preached a, a salvation or a gospel message, is that the Lord would grant some here repentance and, and faith. And of course, ultimately, um, we need to remind ourselves that both faith and repentance lead to action. Going back to what James said, that uh, faith without works is dead. The evidence of true faith is a changed life. And so I think we'll uh, stop there and welcome our guest today. Very special guest, my wife, 
Melissa Sanders. Melissa, welcome to our Systematic Theology class. Thank you. Well, I mentioned when we started this class about two months ago that you are the primary theology teacher of our four children. So I want to pick your brain a little bit today. I've had a lot of questions since we started this uh, class from moms and dads about the best way to teach theology in their home. So first of all, I know your history is that uh, you come from a family of ministers. Both of your grandfathers were pastors for many, many years in upstate New York. How do you think that family background has helped prepare you to teach theology to our family? Well, I did. I had great um, grandparents who were godly people, and uh, they loved me, and they shared Jesus with me, and I know they prayed for me a lot, um, and just spent time investing um, just in me, um, teaching me about the Bible, and uh, just spending time with me, loving on me, and meeting me where I was at. I know, of course, also that your parents are very godly people, Christians, very active in our church here at First Baptist Keller. Your father is our organist, and your mom teaches in our children's ministry. What do you remember about your own childhood as far as um, your parents' strategy to teach you the things of God um, and your three siblings? Uh, we did Awana uh, growing up. Our church had a really good program, and I remember doing that from kindergarten up until I was in middle school. Um, if you're not familiar with the Awana program, that's a lot of Bible memory, and you, they give you a book. And so at home during the week, my mom would review uh, the Bible verses with me to help me be ready to recite them to my leader each week. Um, they took us to church almost every time the doors were open. And and maybe there were times I didn't always appreciate that, but looking back, I'm grateful that they taught me um, that being at church and serving each week was should be a priority. Um, I loved our church family. They really taught me that um, loyalty was important. We stayed at the same church um, for as long as I can remember, despite pastors leaving, despite some difficult um, situations, um, they just stayed and served faithfully, and um, I really, that just meant a lot to me and means more probably even now as I'm an adult. Well, we have four children. Uh, as I mentioned, they range in age from 14 down to five years old, and I suspect uh, your strategies have been modified over the years as far as teaching based on each child's unique personality. But in general, can you share with the parents listening today, what is our strategy as a family for, for teaching our children theology? Well, one great resource that we have used probably since Aubrey was three or four um, is the Truth and Grace Catechism book. Um, a friend had told me about it years ago, and I remember getting it and um, just finding it really helpful. Um, it includes the questions and answers, so you're teaching just biblical truths, but in very small uh, nuggets that kids can um, memorize and hopefully hide in their hearts, and the Lord can use that to bring fruit in their life later. Uh, we've also worked on Bible memory over the years. I've used different books. Um, sometimes it would be verses that they were learning um, in Sunday school or in RAs and GAs or sometimes even in our Bible um, curriculum, our homeschool curriculum that we use, uh, just finding opportunities. Sometimes it was even a Bible verse that I saw, hey, we need to work on not complaining all the time, so let's find a Bible verse that will help us practice that. 
So obviously use a, a variety of strategies. You mentioned that we homeschool. How do you incorporate theology, say, into music? I know you come from a very musical family, um, not only music, but the reading assignments that our kids have in their curriculum and that they do for personal enjoyment. Uh, and then what place does the church have, the physical campus, um, in that role? Well, in our homeschool curriculum, um, I have chosen to use a curriculum that uh, ties history and sciences all from a biblical perspective, and um, they usually provide some read-alouds that we can do. So some of the things that we've done are reading Christian biographies um, in different years. Um, This year we have had a hymn to memorize or just kind of sing through each week, and Uh, I think that's been really helpful to just uh, review those. Of course, we love to sing anyway, so trying to pick either ones that we've sung recently in church that I noticed our kids know as well, or uh, just ones that have the really good theology that I want them to know. Um, We also make sure that we're reading our Bible, and we have a Bible time um, at the beginning of our homeschool day, uh, just to kind of set our minds in the right attitude, and I know it's helpful for me, and so I know it's helpful for the kids as well. And sometimes that really leads to some natural discussions that you didn't have planned, but they're really kind of fun to have those spur-of-the-moment, just theological questions that, you know, you couldn't have planned otherwise. So, Well, I know that our family, uh, much of our children's social life revolves around being on campus here at church. And we've not been able to do that at all in the last two months. Um, They're involved in Bible drills, Sunday school. Aubrey, our middle daughter, is scheduled to uh, go into the youth group in the fall. How have you tried to supplement that uh, social interaction these two months that we've been away from the campus? Our kids love being in missions and choir and just seeing their friends every week. And that's been really, really difficult. We've allowed Aubrey to do some of the Zoom classes for Route 56, and so she's gotten to see some of her friends that way. Um, it's I would say that's been the hardest part, just knowing that the church is her is such a big part of her life, and I love that her closest friends are um, church family uh, members, and so I just uh, am grateful for those opportunities. It has made me a lot more appreciative of the sweet families that we have in our church and all the people who teach our kids, and uh, we sure look forward to being back again with everyone soon. I know that most people in our church are aware that our oldest daughter, Emma Kate, is special needs child, and and very severely so. Uh, She's 14 now, nonverbal. How do you try to teach her at a level that hopefully she can comprehend to some degree the things of the Lord? Wow, that's a great (laughs) question, and that really uh, makes me think I know I can do a better job all the time. But I would say uh, we just try to love on her, um, remind her that Jesus loves her. Um, At different times, I have some simple uh, Bible story books that I will read to her. Um, I pray for her every night before she goes to bed. just, yeah, different opportunities, I think, just reminding her that she's loved and she's precious to us and that she's special to Jesus, too. Just 
saying those things, I think, over to her is really important, too. Of course, we've been blessed through the years with so many volunteers in our church who have been her shadow and her helper in Sunday school and discipleship. Um, I know you and I always want to express our thanks and appreciation for all the people in our church who volunteered to help all of our special needs children. Yes, definitely. I'm so grateful for all of the different volunteers. There's so many, and I don't want to forget anyone's name, but uh, every week they, and even Wednesday nights here recently, they started um, coming and hanging out with her, just different people that we've had over the years who love on her and keep her safe, and I know they tell her about Jesus uh, in a level that, you know, on a level that she can comprehend, and it's, she loves being with all the people. (laughs) Anyone who will be kind to her and love on her, she is happy to be at church. It's one of her favorite places for sure. And we're grateful that we get to then do Sunday school and serve in other areas um, around the church as well. So it's kind of a blessing for everyone involved. Well, final question then. Um, Someone hearing all the effort that you put in and being so intentional about teaching our children theology and about the Lord what would you say to someone who would say, uh, why do you do that? Why do you spend so much time teaching your children? What would you say? Uh, that is, what is your end game or, or your goal for our children? Well, yeah, um, I feel like the Bible has commanded me to do that. Um, Deuteronomy 6 talks about that we're to teach you know, the law and the Word of God to our children all the time, like when we sit and when we rise and when we're walking and when we're, you know, I mean, just all day. And I don't do it perfectly, um, but by, by God's grace, I pray that I am doing a little bit better today than I was a couple years ago. Uh, it's important to me that I've, I want to teach my children what's, in, what, you know, I believe and what's important to me. Um, I pray that as I teach them the Word of God, as we um, take them to church and have other people teach them about Jesus and His Word, I, I want that to hopefully bring salvation. I pray that all the time that God will open their eyes. Um, Aubrey has made a profession of faith, and Andrew has made a profession of faith, and that was such a joy um, to see. And I pray for those two that will continue to see fruit, that God will continue to grow them and use them later on in their lives um, for great things for his namesake and um, for Eliza, who's just five. I'm, you know, very intentional because I pray that the Lord will open her eyes to her need for Jesus um, in a couple, you know, in the next couple years as well. Um, And then we'll be able to see how he uses her for his glory in years to come as well. Um, And for Emma Kate, you know, I mean, she's, obviously very special and I know the Lord loves her very much and so I just I want her to as much as she can understand that and I know she understands way more than we probably understand she does um that God loves her too and you know she has sanctified her life has um you know God has used her to sanctify me and to um make me more like him in many ways and so I'm grateful for her as well well, thank you for your time today. Uh, we like to close our class each week with prayer, and I usually voice that prayer. Uh, but I want to ask a favor of you. There's probably some moms and dads listening today that they know they should be more involved in their children's spiritual lives. 
They may be a little bit overwhelmed right now of where to start. Would you pray for those families in our church that the Lord would give them grace and wisdom and that all of us would view our parenting as a stewardship unto the Lord and that he would give us grace and strength and wisdom to do that? Yes, I would be happy to. Heavenly Father God, I thank you, Lord, for our church family. I I thank you for the many parents that we have within our church family. God, I just um, pray for those moms and dads right now who might be just feeling like a failure and feeling like they haven't done enough. God, I pray that you would um, just remind them that your mercies are new every morning and that today is a great day to start. Um, if they haven't made it a priority up until this point, God, I we all need your grace and we all need your mercy. We have good days and bad days, Lord, but I pray that um, you would give us wisdom, you would help us to um, remember important things like that teaching our children the truths of your word and who you are, God, that is the most important thing we can pass on to our children. And I just pray that you would give us the strength to do that. I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that we would um, be seeking you by reading our Bibles and praying so that we have the um, wisdom and we have the ability to teach our children. God, that should be first and foremost. And I just um, pray that you would be with us all. I pray that you would use our efforts for your honor and glory and that in future years, God, we would see boys and girls become young men and women who love you and who want to serve you and um, do great things for you in the future. God, please um, protect us, bring us back together very soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 